And weren't we proud of our choir last Sunday evening and their King David? They bless us so wonderfully and we are deeply grateful. In the beginning of his ministry, Jesus repeatedly said, my hour has not yet come, but now his hour has come. The disciples are awed as they see their master walking before them up the rocky road that leads from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now in this, his last hours, he is coming back within reach of his enemies. They stand amazed at his courage, for Bethany is that little village hard by Jerusalem where already the Jews have attempted to stone him. But he deliberately comes back to Bethany, and when they learn that he is coming, on that Saturday evening after the Sabbath has concluded at 6 p.m., they make for him a supper. Indeed, he is an honored guest in that place, for he has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the entire community knows about that miracle. Because his life had been threatened, indeed the life of Lazarus too, because many believed in Jesus because of that miracle. Before, when that miracle had been worked, there had been no opportunity for them to honor Jesus. But now that opportunity had presented itself as he had come once more to their city, and they make for him a supper. There were two expressions of love that night, in addition to the expression of love which the supper represents. For before we read the story of Mary and her outpouring of devotion, we also read characteristically, Martha served. Martha was always serving, one of those practical, down-to-earth people. She could walk into anyone's kitchen and see instantly what needs to be done. She looks on other people less practical than she and considers them probably supremely useless, such as that contemplative, unpractical sister of hers who was all thumbs and could care less about those serving activities. Martha always served. It was her glory to serve. I know she was once reproved by Jesus for being so caught up in much serving that she chose to see the better part, which was to hear him. I know she was reproved, but when she was reproved, she did not peevishly run off in the other extreme. She got a better perspective on her service. And Martha is to be honored as Mary. Martha is that timeless reminder that there are many ministries, but one Lord. Her service in the kitchen is as honored 
as mirrors in the living room or in a cabinet or in a pulpit for all service ranks the same with our God. Martha loved him too. Don't ever forget it. And Mary, there are three memorable pictures of Mary in the scriptures. One of them is when she is listening to the words of Jesus, enthralled by them, moved by them, transformed by them, and is unavailable to help her sister who's encumbered with the serving. Another time she comes to the feet of Jesus asking for sympathy and for help because her brother Lazarus has died. And this time she comes to the feet of Jesus to anoint him against the day of his burial, to pour out her costly ointment. It is supremely characteristic of Mary that she was always at the feet of Jesus. In every picture of this woman, she was at the feet of Jesus. This is why we honor her as we do. This is why her story is told again and again wherever this gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. We need to understand that her love was an extravagant love, out of the ordinary, beyond the customary. Indeed, the washing of the feet of the guest was reserved for the work of the lowly servant, or even perhaps the host. Later on, if the family it were a family of means, they could anoint the head of the honored guest with some oil. But this work of, of anointing Jesus, Mary chose for herself and not for the work of the slave who would cleanse his dusty feet from that long walk from Jericho up to uh, Bethany. More than that, when we think about anointing, we think about honoring someone by anointing his head. The psalmist declared, thou anointest my head with oil. That was customary. What Mary did was out of the ordinary in the sense that through her penitence and her humility, she did not feel herself worthy to anoint the head of Jesus. Instead, she anointed his feet. And then don't forget the part when she wiped them dry with her hair. Oh my goodness, it was, it was shamefully immodest for a woman to have her hair unbound in a public gathering. It, it was something that simply was not done. The, the unbound hair was reserved for that other penitent we read about in Luke who was, who was a sinner off the street, but for this woman who was the friend of Jesus to, to in a moment of self-forgetfulness, unbind her hair, why, it was completely out of the ordinary. But in the case with Mary, a towel was not good enough. It was her hair 
that which represented herself. Paul said, uh, a woman's hair is her glory. And, and Mary wanted to use a portion of herself to cleanse the feet of her Lord. Why do you suppose she put that ointment on there, which was so expensive? The Bible calls it pure nard. Nard comes from a plant found in northern India. Not many families would have accumulated an entire pound of this ointment. This nard was customarily found in those homes where they had some means, and they would work to accumulate enough nard to embalm the family members. But in the case of Jesus, Mary forgot their own needs and their own saving plan and emptied this nard onto the feet of Jesus. It represented one year's work, 300 denarii. It was an incredible gift, and Jesus both accepted the gift and commended her for it. Why did she put it on and immediately take it off with the strands of her hair? Do you suppose Mary was already recognizing that this man sitting beside her brother, seeing them there caused her heart to overflow with love and she could not contain herself in the expression of her devotion? Seeing that man sitting there who had raised her brother from the dead, the man who had saved her own soul, do you suppose as she began to anoint him against her, his burial, she immediately took it off because she knew already he was the resurrection and the life? Do you suppose she realized in that moment that the grave had no power to hold him? So his, his anointing was an incomplete and partial affair. But the other side of the story is when you have extravagant, extravagant love, it is always censored by the unloving. For generosity is resented by greed, always is. And when Judas saw her in that moment of great devotion empty that costly perfume onto the feet of Jesus, he grunted and grumbled, saying, Why wasn't this sold? It would have been, it could have brought 300 denarii. It's terribly expensive. Why wasn't that sold and given to the poor? Now the scriptures say in that King James Version, Judas bear the money bag or the money box. And the Greek word for bear means to carry or to carry out. Judas did both. He carried and he 
carried out. Because John, of all the evangelists, John chooses to tell us that Judas didn't really care about the poor. This was, benevolent, this was greed masquerading as benevolence. He really wanted that extra money in the money box that he might pilfer even more for himself. I mean, Judas was a modern man, was he not? Judas was the man for every age. This business of adoration and worship is so shadowy. And what does that amount to? What does that accomplish? Judas looks through cold, calculating eyes that sees the hard realities of a material world. He doesn't go for this vague, nebulous worship stuff. He would never understand Wordsworth's sonnet, which I saw there in King's College at Cambridge University. He would never understand that sonnet that says, Give all thou canst. High heaven rejects the lore of calculated less or more. He would never have comprehended that sonnet because his was a calculating allegiance, always calculating. And in Mary, he was confronted by someone who, in the person of Jesus, when she saw him, she could not calculate, but she simply emptied the contents. Judas would never have understood those pioneers of the cathedral at Seville who said when they contemplated building that matchless structure, let us build such a cathedral that the generations who come after us will consider us mad even for having attempted it. The cold and the calculating can never appreciate beauty. They do not understand the expenditure for art glass. They do not understand the decorations at the top of the columns, though God himself told Solomon to decorate the tops of the columns. They do not understand any of that which is not rooted and grounded in the material. They cannot come to terms with the intangible. And when a church declares its intent to landscape its grounds, grounds that resembled Normandy Beach after the invasion, the confident critics fill the air with their sounds, why wasn't this money given to the poor? Some cannot comprehend the meaning of a beautiful act the importance of beauty and the intangible. The other evangelists, when they tell about their similar stories, said Jesus declared she has done a beautiful thing. And he accepted it and commended her for it. But those rooted and grounded in the cold material cannot understand the beautiful. Give it to the poor, they cry. When will they understand? 
that the poor are well served only by those who have first learned adoration and worship? When will they know that? That if all we can offer the poor is a handout, groceries and grub, and, in, and, and with nothing of a transformation, we have not served them well. We serve the poor well. And the Bible says, Jesus responded saying, The poor with you always. The presence of the poor is constant. And the church's response to the poor must be constant. For the Bible says, You will open thine hand wide to the poor. That is the continuing responsibility of the church, but the church does not prove itself by how much it gives to the poor. Because the church, unlike every other agency in the world, offers the poor the transforming power and presence of Jesus Christ that brings with it a sense of dignity and lets all persons know that they are children of the Most High God. That's how we're different. Dennis Campbell writing in this month's issue of the Christian Century. Dennis Dean at Duke Divinity School said, If we are to teach our ministers at seminary only how to raise the sociological level of people and the political level of people and the psychological level of people, if that's what we're here for, let's admit it, close up shop, and give up the work. We are here to care for the poor. But in our caring, we offer them the transforming power of Jesus Christ. This Mary had worshipped and the first responsibility for every person is adoration and worship. Out of that worship experience flows everything that is good and right and holy. Judas would never understand that because greed was always getting in the way of his generosity. Real love, extravagant love, always takes us back to its source. Oftentimes it's inconvenient and even hurting. But John, who is the most theological of all the gospel writers, tells us that this woman's perfume filled the house with its fragrance. Isn't that a beautiful statement? In the other Gospels, Jesus said, wherever the Gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. But John says the same thing. His Gospel was written later, and he says the fragrance fills the whole house. In other words, the fragrance of this offering has filled the entire church and will fill it always. Glory will always have the fragrance of Mary's offering. I was reminded of that last week. I got a beautiful letter from one of you who said God had blessed me with something extra and I was praying about what I could do with an extra offering to my God and His church 
And then the Easter letter arrived and there was an envelope. God not only answered my prayer, he gave me an envelope and a postage paid return envelope. And you sent us a thousand dollars. That's the way it is with those who have experienced this extravagant love. It's like when Jesus sent his disciples to pick up that colt that he might ride him into the city. They didn't have to beg. They didn't have to plead. They didn't have to cajole. They just said the Lord has need of it. And for those who have this love in their heart, that's enough. If my Lord needs it, I look only for the opportunity of providing it. Like that grand, that set of grandparents, 67 years old, heard about them last week in another state. Their daughter died right at that time in life when they had thought about enjoying their two grandchildren ages seven and two. They were kicked back and relaxed, ready to enjoy life, do some traveling. Their daughter died. Their daughter had married an immature man. He didn't want the bother of those little children. He was going to put them in an institution. The grandfather intervened. He said to the officials, I doubt that I will fulfill my obligations before my life runs out. For I will be 83 when this two-year-old becomes a senior in high school. But that doesn't stop me for asking for them, from asking for them. And that doesn't stop me from taking that responsibility. Extravagant love reaches out for responsibility. And extravagant love is what finally claims us and saves us. I love the story of Cyrus, the king whom God used to free the people of Israel and bring them back home. Cyrus, in one of the sto many stories about his life, uh, tells about a chieftain who gave great uh, problems to his empire. He was always rising up and fighting against him. And finally, Cyrus managed to capture that chieftain and brought the man and his wife to stand before him on the day he was to be executed. Cyrus, out of curiosity, asked that man, who was a big, strong person, what would you do if I spared your life today? And the chieftain responded, I would be your loyal subject forever. Cyrus was impressed. He looked at the man's wife and said, what would you do if I spared your wife's life today? He said, I would die for you this very instant. So moved was the king by their reply, he freed both the man and his wife and sent him back to be his governor in the very territory where he lived. On their way back home, the man's wife uh, listened to her husband as he talked about the king's palace. Did you see those columns covered with gold? Did you see those tapestries? Did you see that ivory? 
And the woman responded, No, I saw none of that. I beheld only the face of the man who was willing to die for me. Mary saw the face of the man who was willing to die for her. Have you seen his face? When you encounter his extravagant love, you discover something of love yourself, and you understand why Mary did what she had to do. Amen. Our closing hymn is, O love divine, what hast thou done? As we sing this hymn, let those of you who wish to unite with our church present yourself now for church membership and we'll be pleased to present you to this congregation. Will you come forward as we stand and sing?
And now may the one who laid down his life that you might live be with you and fill you with his spirit both now and evermore. Amen.